Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 47 of the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, and thanks for listening. Well, on the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, episode 16, with Ashley and Brooke Barlow, we talked about pharmacists and social media as a tool for education, engagement, and connection. Well, Twitter was a spark for the connection with today's guest. Listen in to learn more. Well, now, on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Dr. Christina Madison. Christina and I are going to be discussing many things, including her passion for advocating for the profession of pharmacy and communicating the value of the pharmacist. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Christina, and then also let her tell you about herself, her career, and many varied experiences in life in general. Christina Madison is an award-winning clinical pharmacist, wife, and mom of two. In 2019, she founded the public health consulting firm, The Public Health Pharmacist, PLLC. She's been an associate professor of pharmacy practice with Roseman University of Health Sciences College of Pharmacy for the past 16 years, where she works as a clinical pharmacist specializing in public health with a focus on communicable diseases. She actively advocates for the needs of the LGBTQIA community, her bio includes national speaker, media spokesperson, and author. She does it all. She's been featured in over 200-plus on-air television appearances and was recently featured on GMA3, What You Need to Know. I can't wait to learn more. Christina, thanks for being here with me today. As we get started, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, about your family, and your path to pharmacy school. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Melissa. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely been a journey, and I'm I was listening to you uh, talk about my bio, and I was like, wow, I sound pretty uh, pretty accomplished. You do. <laughs> you know, I think I feel like we all go through a bit of a you know um, imposter syndrome, and so it's so interesting. I often talk with my husband about you know this like this desire to feel like you're doing more and, and wanting to, to be everything to everyone. And so it is nice to kind of sit back and think about what you've accomplished. And one of my favorite books, actually, because I'm a habitual achiever, um, and I tend not to like, you know, live in the moment and enjoy the successes of life is a, a book called The Gap and the Gain. And it talks about how these, you know, hyper achievers tend to not be able to just, you know, revel in the moment once they've met a goal, but they tend to just want to move on to the next goal. So um, one of the things that I've been working towards in my journey of self-development is is just, you know, being more present and in the moment and enjoying sort of the successes that I've had, especially within the last couple of years. So to answer your first question, you know, a little bit about me and sort of my career. You know, I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare, and that stemmed from having a uh, a medical emergency when I was young. So when I was nine years old, I had an emergency appendectomy, and I was in the hospital for several weeks um, as 
and and had to miss quite a bit of school. And so a couple of things happened. One was I had incredible care um, at the hospital and I really admired the people who took care of me. But then two, um, because I was an avid dancer, performer, entertainer, um, I really wanted to get back to health because I never felt more like myself and more alive than when I was on stage. And so that was sort of my motivation to get better, to get well. Um, and really to prioritize my health. So that's one of the big things that, you know, sort of drove me to to wanting to have a profession in healthcare. Um, my uh, maternal grandfather uh, was a physician before he passed away. And so always just really thought, you know, this is where I want to be. I want to help people. And then, you know, a couple twists and turns later, ended up being accepted to pharmacy school early. So I was um, three years into my undergrad. Um, had already completed all of my prerequisites and got accepted early into pharmacy school. And so um, after that, I completed a residency. And during that time, I had an opportunity to work with student pharmacists and really caught the teaching bug. So I was at the VA in New Mexico, was participating in clinical practice uh, activities with the students. Um, I managed all of the student rotations as part of my residency and then was able to teach in their skills lab and just was like, I fell in love. And so moved back to Las Vegas, which is where I currently live and uh, for family and taught for a medical school for a little while, but missed patient care. So then that um, led me to a job teaching for the university that I graduated from. And at the time, they had two positions open. They had one at our county hospital, which I had worked at, and the other, which was at our uh, local public health department. So by the time I interviewed for the position, they said, oh, sorry, the, you know, the hospital job, they decided to go with the current resident. And I was like, okay, no problem. And the school said, you know, if it doesn't work out, like, you know, after a year, we'll move you to a different practice site, right? Because the university paid my salary, not the practice site. So fast forward 10 years later, I was still at the health department. And it really like shaped me as a young professional and as a young pharmacist because of the fact that I had so much autonomy and was able to create so many clinical services on my own. I started the first uh, pharmacist-led tuberculosis LTBI clinic for latent tuberculosis care, did a lot of immigrant and refugee health, worked with HIV, STIs, family planning, disaster preparedness, vaccinations. It was literally like the best job ever. Um, and then they had a change in management. And so it just didn't align anymore. And so then I ended up transitioning to a family medicine clinic that catered to the LGBTQ community, which is where I currently am and went in, uh, in May of uh, 2018. And, you know, now I've been there for, um, you know, almost five years. And things are just incredible. I love working with the LGBTQ community. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. But, you know, because of my public health background, I think it really has allowed me so much flexibility to really do and try a lot of different things. And then that's kind of how I ended up in the communication space, because during the pandemic, there was very few people who actually understood sort of the science around a viral illness um, that could be respiratorily transmitted. And so that's how I ended up with my first media appearance. And then it just kind of snowballed. And then, 
you know, here comes the TED Talk, here comes Good Morning America, here comes the White House. And yeah, I think, you know, part of it is just like, I'm not afraid to be on camera. And a lot of people who work in healthcare are, <laughs> Yes, um, you know, so it just really, it worked out well. And it's something I really enjoy and love. Well, oh my goodness, there is so much to unpack there, Christina. First of all, as a fellow achiever, striver, I want to echo how much I appreciate that you opened by sharing about being more in the moment. And I'm grateful that you and I are together today to have this moment and, you know, this conversation. And I know others will, once they're listening, you know, out in our community, that it's so important to take in all the different things that you talked about. And I also loved hearing about your personal journey, you know, your the, your healthcare experience when you were younger and how that informed your passion and interest. And also some of the twists and turns in your career. That's been a really cool thing, I think, on the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast to reinforce that these journeys typically are not linear and they can be more like a jungle gym, you know, up and down and, and, and all around in that. So I very much enjoyed hearing about that and also the foundation that, you know, your public health background provided. And, you know, I think that's a good segue now. I mentioned that, um, we recent or we recently met in person just last week at the APHA 2023 meeting, and it was so great to connect. I mean, I kind of saw you. You and I were both in the registration area, and I think both of us had these moments during in Phoenix where you see someone and you're like, "I think I know who that is." Like we've either been on a Zoom together or we've been on you know together in social media. So it was so nice to meet you in person um, and and give you a hug and all that. So tell me more about your open forum session on. Sunday, you know, that seemed like one of the hottest things going on there where you talked about how to convey pharmacists value. And what else was a highlight for you for the APHA annual meeting in Phoenix? Well, first and foremost, thank you for that. Uh, I really enjoyed um, just getting to see people. And, you know, biggest thing was just there's so many people that I've worked with for like 18 to 24 months and have never met physically in person. So that was by far the highlight for me of the meeting was just being able to make that connection. Uh, I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, you know, it's that, that, that connection when you have with someone, you know, I know it sounds a little woo woo, but like, you know, you fill people's vibe, you get their energy, you fill their aura and you can't do that when you're on a computer screen. And so there's some people that you just vibe with right away. And then there's people that maybe you have to kind of, you know, that grow on you. But for me, it was really great because, um, you know, I met up with, you know, multiple people and I was really deliberate um, because APHA is not a meeting that I typically attend. And so I went through all of the speakers and I looked through all of the people that I wanted to connect with and um, also people who had um, indicated because I posted uh, on social media that I would be attending and that I would be speaking. Um, I went back and looked and saw who said that they would be attending. And so I reached out to them and asked if they had time to meet. And so it was really great because um, I don't know about you, but uh, I was just really happy with you know, just the amount of time that things were centered, you know, yep. the opening reception was really lovely. There was a lot going on in the exhibits and, you know, there's a lot of really great programming. And so for, for me, I just really enjoyed just that camaraderie time to get to know people and just being very deliberate about um, having those uh, sustained relationships and, and potential future partnerships. So that was a highlight for me. And then as far as my session, so, 
you know, I think part of the reason why APHA asked me to do it was because I had had an opportunity to meet um, with the current fellows uh, at APHA in Washington, D.C. So when I went to uh, to the White House for the COVID-19 Equity Summit, I reached out to APHA and asked if there was, you know, an opportunity for me to be able to go to headquarters and just to kind of maybe meet with some people. And it was really lovely. So I went, I got to take a tour of the facility. Um, it was really cool because um, this year um, I, well, I shouldn't say this year, this year was announced um, that I was part of the class of 2022 Bowl of Hygieo winners. Yeah, that's and a big so deal. I got to, yeah, and so I got to see the like actual bowl of Hygieia. So I have a picture of myself next to the real bowl of Hygieia, not just the picture of the bowl of Hygieia. Uh, which is pretty cool. And then I got to sign the book that oh, like, yeah. you know, when you go, which is so cool. And so, um, yeah, it was just a really lovely experience. And, you know, they asked me about, uh, you know, what I, you know, what I was going to be talking about on the summit and they watched it real time. And they said they were like screaming when they were like, oh my God, she said pharmacy, <laughs> you know, like, cause I was the only pharmacist in the room and right. so like and the, one of the questions they asked is how can we support pharmacy and I'm like pay us you know like and they're like ah, you know so it's just this like whole thing and so they're like look at this person like standing up for our profession and and really you know communicating our value and so that's kind of the impetus of how the the, the uh, talk got started and then they had my other panelist there who's done a ton of work um, with University of Pittsburgh and just aligning with uh, making sure that payers recognize pharmacists. And so that was really interesting, con uh, you know, connection between sort of like the public facing side and how we communicate our value to the public, which, you know, is really important. But then also like on the back end, like how are we communicating our value to the people who actually, you know, can pay us and we can bill for services. So there's a really lovely contrast between the two. And then also one of the things that I feel like I really took away from the session was, you know, most pharmacists are very uh, apprehensive to say that they're a pharmacist for whatever reason. I don't know why, but, you know, starting off a conversation with I'm a pharmacist, like that should be part of every conversation before you start anything. You know, when you introduce yourself, you know, we all him and haw and you say, oh, I work in academia or I work in infectious disease or I work in ambulatory care. No, you should say your name and say, I'm a pharmacist. This is where I practice. Because I feel like the more we have the recognition that pharmacists are not just what you see when you Google, which is a white male in a white coat behind a counter, which is yep. absolutely not reflective of the of the profession right now, um, with more than 50% in some instances, 60 and 70% of pharmacy school classes being female, and a lot of them being um, females of, of diverse ethnicity. So I think that's just really not reflective of how the profession is actually made up. And unfortunately, we're just not seeing that reflected in, you know, in communication. And so that's why I've been stepping up. And I feel like I have a responsibility to not just say, you know, Dr. Madison, but, you know, Dr. Madison, clinical pharmacist. And I just think it's really purposeful and very deliberate to make sure, because I think a lot of people have that misconception that we only are behind the counter counting pills when a lot of the people in our profession are doing direct patient care, they're doing regulatory affairs, 
they're doing public health, they're doing medication safety, they're, you know, commissioned officers, they're working in carceral health, they're working at the FDA, they're working at the DEA, the CDC, there's just so many different places that pharmacy are working, and are kind of behind the scenes, and not necessarily open, um, especially when you look at like, pharmacists that work for the federal system, they have to get any kind of public uh, you know, public appearances, it has to go through their PIO or their public information officer. And so a lot of times they just don't want to go through that rigmarole because they're like, oh, you know, I don't know if it's going to get approved. Well, here's the thing. If we don't start screaming from the rooftops how awesome we are, we're going to be replaced by automation. And we need to show that it's our cognitive skills, just not the fact that we can count by five. That is the reason why we should be a more valued member of the healthcare system. Amen. Amen. You touched on when we when you talked about APHA being intentional and purposeful about who you were going to meet with and setting schedules and also like the vibe of connecting with people. And, you know, I think that's just such an important message to reinforce that, you know, some planning really makes a difference in connections. And then we shared this at the um, women in pharmacy session on Friday and that so many people are open to meeting. There were probably many people that you hadn't connected with before, or maybe you had just done so on social media. But I think if if a um, student pharmacist is listening to this podcast or an emerging leader that, you know, take take the risk, reach out to someone, set up these meetings that they're very welcome and people want to help each other. The other part that I just want to highlight, I mean, I just love, Christina, that you were in the room where it happens. You know, we've talked about that earlier, the Hamilton thing, that as a pharmacist, you were around the table and we need more of those. And I couldn't agree with you more too about representation matters. And so, you know, all those concepts that you highlighted, we'll continue to talk about in this conversation, but just so, so important. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you were able to cover some of that in the open forum. I also want to give a shout out to another Melissa that you referenced, Melissa um, McGivney from Pitt. I was very fortunate to get to know her in the last couple of years through our work on the ACT Pharmacy Collaborative. And boy, she's a firecracker. You know, the work that she's doing in academia and partnerships with community pharmacy and really showing innovation and innovative practice models and people getting paid. So just love that you two were, you know, part of that session. And I think that's going to be very motivating and inspiring for people in the future. Yeah, there was a lot of um, really interesting questions. It was maybe not as well attended as I would have liked, but the people that were there were very engaged. That's great. You know, I think the challenge sometimes too is just competing priorities or, you know, there's other sessions. So, but that's, that just sounds like such a cool one. Well, as you and I have talked today, you know, it's clear that you're a sought after expert. And with that comes many invitations and competing priorities, you know, for you to be a voice in pharmacy and advocate for pharmacy. So let's dig a little deeper on that one. How do you determine like what you're going to say yes to, what you're going to say no to? Sometimes that's really hard. Like, how do you do it and how do you prevent from getting overloaded? So uh, the first thing I would say is that I, it, it's, it's been a journey. So I, again, as a people pleaser, uh, you know, a habitual achiever, a recovering workaholic have challenges with saying no, but that is something that I have purposefully and intentionally worked on over the past several years, really since the pandemic. And so I have a criteria. So the first criteria is 
does it align with my mission and my and my vision for myself professionally and the vision for my consulting business? So that's number one. Um, and if it doesn't align with that, then I don't do it. The second criteria is if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. Because I only do things that give me joy. Okay. So that's it. Those are the two criteria. It has to align with my mission and my vision. And if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. <laughs> Unless they're paying me a lot of money. <laughs> so like, that's really it. Like, that's honestly what it comes down to. So um, I know it sounds probably a, like overly simplified, but that's really what it comes down to. The other thing too is, um, is I hired help. So that's the other thing too. I definitely don't want people to like, come away from this conversation thinking, oh, you know, she does all these things. And, you know, I have no idea how she does it all. I don't do it all. I hired help, like every step of the way. So like when I did my TED talk, I hired a coach. I hired somebody who had done it before and increased my likelihood of success. So I don't know if you know much about TED talks, but most speakers who apply don't do it, don't get it the first time. And especially not when it's one of the TED X that are one of the the affiliates that is more sought after. And at the time, I didn't know this, but I just picked the TEDx that was closest to me. So I picked TEDx Reno. I didn't realize it's the three, one of the three most competitive TED talks in the country when oh I picked it. Right? Yeah. No clue. Like my yeah. ignorance was like, oh, yeah, it seems right. Like, you know, like, yeah, let's go. Right. Jesus, take the wheel. Right. Yeah. Like I just was like, let's do it. Right had no clue, but I knew that I wanted to set myself up for success. So I hired help. I hired somebody to help me with my application. And then once I was accepted, I hired somebody to help me with crafting my message. So I knew I had an idea worth spreading, but it's seven minutes, right. it's seven minutes. It's it has to have some sort of like research-based, uh, you know, element to it. I cited clinical research in addition to having really impactful storytelling and that took time. And I had coaches and up until like literally two weeks until I gave my Ted talk, they were still changing my talk. It was grueling. So again, like higher help be ready to put the work in. I can't tell you how many masterminds I've done. I have invested thousands of dollars in media coaching and professional success and being able to like be in the room when it happens. Also like showing up as your best self. Like I invest in professional photography, videography, all of that stuff costs money. Like it's not cheap. And it's like, you have to know, like, what is your end goal? What's your return on investment? And, you know, there's some things that I'm innately good at. I call that my zone of genius. And I tend to try to do just those things. But sometimes you end up having to do stuff that maybe isn't something that's like necessarily in your wheelhouse. But I say pharmacists can do anything because, you know, you're residency trained, you do, you do drug yep. information. Pharmacists can literally do any job, right? But should you like that's the question you should be asking just because you can doesn't mean you should so hire help if i can leave anybody with any other messaging like don't try to do it all yourself i don't and i am not about to lie to you and tell you i do i hire help and this year in particular i hired a personal assistant so my personal assistant booked all of my appointments 
made sure she reminded me before I had all of my like sessions with all the people I met with. She personally emailed everyone. Everyone felt like a VIP. So by the time I met with them, they were so happy to meet with me. They were like, Oh my God, like, this is so great. Like Sierra is amazing. Right. I'm sure you probably had a similar experience with her. She's fantastic. Right. But that's how you set yourself up for success. Right. Like you want to treat people the way you want to be treated. And I would want somebody to make me feel like I was like super special and I was a VIP. And of course, then I would be like, of course I want to meet with this person. Right. Like, it's so strange how, like how differently you're treated when you have your representative reach out for you versus when you reach out for yourself. So, and it's not like I spend a ton of money. I mean, I, she works for me five hours a week, you know, she does it, you know, virtually at her house by herself, you know, like I don't stress her out. If I have something that comes up emergently, I'll text her, but like five, maybe max 10 hours in a week. Like she, it it doesn't need a bunch of time, but it is seriously life-changing. You know, I just, Christina, you just shared so many cool things. One, you know, the higher help is so important. Also reinforcing the, why you saw it so important for the TEDx talk, because you and I both know, having done a lot of public speaking, it is much harder to speak in a more concise manner than you totally know to do, to, to do a half hour or an hour presentation. They are like night and day. And also the audience, you know, the a, a consumer centric audience versus um, healthcare background. So I just love that. And I also want to give a shout out to Sierra because yes, I will say that as we worked on scheduling this, her professionalism, attention to detail, you know, you and I are in different time zones, ensuring that we were speaking off the same page because that can be an important thing. Really, really cool. I just love all that. The other thing that you and I connected on is you recently had a birthday and I think we share this trait is that we'd love to celebrate our birthdays on more, you know, birthday oh, week, yeah. birth, birth, birthday still, week. Still celebrating. Yeah. yeah. Bir- Technically birthday week, not March birth- anymore, but I'm celebrating tomorrow. Good. Birthday week, birthday month. So, you know, I loved seeing your birthday post and then some reflections that you shared for the coming year. And one of those that, again, I took some notes on and, you know, thought to myself when we had our conversation, I wanted to talk to you more. You said that like health is the new wealth. So what does that look like for you? And what are you planning? Yeah. So um, full disclosure, I've had, um, you know, I, I, I disclosed that I had that health issue when I was younger, but since I've had my children, Um, I had complications after both pregnancies. So, uh, and then after my second, I was hospitalized with sepsis uh, seven weeks after my daughter was born and I almost died. And the, the thing that was really horrible about it was that I actually had to go to the ER twice before I was admitted. And I fully am aware that like our healthcare system is flawed. Um, but you know, as someone who works in healthcare, has a doctorate, thought that they could advocate for themselves. I had no idea that I would be basically discriminated against because of the skin, you know, the color of my skin. And the only difference between me not being admitted and being admitted was that the first doctor who saw me was a white male and the second doctor who saw me was not. And even with my husband there, like they said, oh, you're just tired. You need to go home. You need to rest. You have a new baby at home. You have a toddler. And I was like, no, I am in pain. There's something wrong. I don't know what's going on, but this isn't right. I know my body and this is not right. And they, they, they sent me home and they said, no, you just need to rest. Gave me no medication, no nothing. Follow up with your, with your OBGYN. Um, two days later, I woke my husband up in the middle of the night. I said, if you don't take me to the hospital right now, I'm going to die. 
And he took me to the hospital. And by that time, I had elevated cardiac enzymes. They thought I had postpartum cardiomyopathy. I was in full sepsis. They had to go like full respiratory precautions, like everything, like I was on fall risk, everything. It was terrible. And then I couldn't see my daughter. Um, she was only seven weeks old. I was breastfeeding. The other thing that was really awful about my hospitalization is I don't know how I had this presence of mind, but when my husband and I went to the emergency room, I thought to bring my breast pump with me. So then I had my breast pump in the room, but because I was on fall precautions, I had to call the nurse every single time I needed to express because I was pumping and dumping because I was on these really powerful antibiotics. And um, they would come in and they would ask me, oh, where's your baby? Oh, no. All these things. And I'm like, I'm already like upset, right? At my work, like at my wits end, I'm emotionally a wreck. I'm sick. I'm practically dying. And I'm worried about my baby, even though I had had breast milk and everything for her at home. I did not want to lose my ability to nurse. And my milk supply was never the same after that. Luckily, I had stored a bunch and she was still able to nurse. I nursed her until she was 10 months, but still like, but they had such like a limited view of what I was trying to do. And they like, sometimes I had to like call them multiple times. I'm like, I need to express, like, I can't do, like, I need to maintain my book supply. And it was a priority for me. And they just kind of like poo-pooed it. And they're like, no, no, just worry about it. You can give formula. I'm like, no. Like I had to advocate for myself and they were just not, yeah, it, I just, I was, it was not a pleasant experience like all the way around. But like after that, it just made me so hyper vigilant around like advocating for maternal health and advocating for doulas and having somebody in the room that can speak on your behalf and like in particular black women and like, I just think about how awful it would have been. My husband would have had a seven week old and a not even two year old if I had died by himself. Like, I just, yeah, I try not to think about it. But the reason why I bring this up is, and the reason why I say the health is the new wealth is because health is not guaranteed. And even if you are somebody who knows how the healthcare system works, we have systemic racism and oppression in this country. And we know that modern obstetrician and gynecology is built on the, built on the backs of enslaved women. We know that there's still this perception that black people don't experience pain, our skin is thicker, that we're drug seeking, all of these things, they're still prevalent and pervasive throughout medical education. And so until we get to the crux of that, I, we're never going to reach health equity. And so that's part of why I'm advocating for health and how that looks to me is uh, as much as possible staying well and then telling people about my story and advocating for women who can't advocate for themselves and even advocating for people who may not identify as female that can become pregnant because there are people who may not identify as female but can still conceive and they want to be able to chest or breastfeed their babies and they should have the right to do so and they shouldn't be discriminated against it against it well thank you for sharing your powerful story and um on an earlier episode with candace webb we heard a similar um some of the challenges that her mom faced um, with healthcare that really informed her to become a public health advocate and 
you know, we've touched on this, I think, when I had Lakeisha um, Butler and um, the beauty on also just talking about the challenging healthcare systems and the systemic issues, especially related to infant mortality. And, you know, uh, this has been covered so much that um, it happens across the country, across different. I mean, if you think about even Serena Williams talking about, you know, when you just when you were said you were sent home, I mean, she was sent home and and all of that. So I think it's it's um, an important message. And I'm so happy that you got the care that you needed and that you're still here and able to share that message and share you know, your beautiful family and how that impacts your why, but still reinforces, boy, do we have so much more work to do on that topic and and what it looks like and and need to continue to, you know, share those stories. So, you know, I think that's a nice segue into, you know, your consulting practice. And I've been really intrigued to just see, you know, you've, you're positioned um, that you've started this company, the public health pharmacist and, you know, you've really talked um, about pharmacists as accessible resources in the communities and the difference that they can make. And also, you were doing these things. Uh, one of the things that was so cool for me, um, I'm very good friends with Mitch Rothholz, who was um, celebrated at the recent annual meeting, um, yes. know, a, a champion for immunizations, you know, back to the 90s. And yeah, I, was, I, I was working alongside Mitch and others. I was leading PTCB at the time, but when APHA first you know, launched the first immunization training. Um, you know, Washington State was a real leader in that. Some other st- states embraced it early on. Um, so tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you've done over the years related to public health and then how that uniquely positioned you during the pandemic. Well, the first thing is that this isn't my first rodeo. Like I've yep. already gone through another pandemic. Like I was a, you know, incident commander. Um, so first for those who may not understand, like there's a hierarchy, there's a whole um, ICS, like it's an incident command system that public health uses when they deploy different individuals during a, during an emergency. And so most of the time, especially if it's like communicable disease or if it's like a disaster preparedness uh, issue around like an earthquake, or a natural disaster, or if there's been like a, a, a spill or a toxin um, or bioterrorism, they use this system within ICS. And so if you go to FEMA's website, you can do all these ICS trainings. Um, but one of the jobs that I had at the health department was I was the second point of contact for the strategic, strategic national stockpile for Clark County, which is in Las Vegas proper. And so I did a lot of these like disaster preparedness drills with the health department. Um, I was responsible for our supply of uh, mass prophylaxis, which was Doxy and Cipro. Um, You know, if there was like an anthrax scare or if we had other things and then also um, ended up doing like infant um, neonatal care for um, HIV positive moms. And so we had Zydovidine, um, liquid Zydovidine suspension that we would have if we had a drop in, if we had a new mom that didn't know they were positive. So I managed all of that stuff when I was at the health department. And then we and then H1N1 hit and I did all of those mass vaccination clinics. So this was literally like like if there was ever a time where somebody had like the knowledge and skills and expertise, it was like, what? Like, are you joking? Like this seems a little bit too on the nose, right? Because I had done tuberculosis care. I'd done HIV care. I've been, I've been credentialed with the Academy of HIV medicine since 2013. I started tuberculosis services. I I trained at AJ Holly hospital. I did the last fellowship um, in that hospital before they shut down. They were the last TB sanatorium in the country in 2009 
And so I, t- I tell people this all the time. I'm like, COVID-19 is like HIV and tuberculosis had a baby. And it's like, who else would be better to know this than to manage this than me? I'm like, it's so strange that I have both of these skill sets. And I'm like, all these people are like, oh, what do you mean ultraviolet light can work? Oh, we need respiratory protection. I'm like, dude, we used to put people in isolation. We used to put people in sanatoriums if they said that they wouldn't get treated. We didn't do that with anyone with COVID. Like you're a public health threat. Like with tuberculosis, we put you in jail. Like if you just, if you chose not to be treated, like, like it's so interesting to me because I feel like all that historical stuff got lost and people just didn't think about it. Or they just forgot that we used to have TB sanatoriums across this entire country. Like I talked to my grandmother one time and she's like, oh yeah, we had a cousin that we just didn't see for like two years. And we're like, we're pretty sure he was at the, yeah, yeah. They, he was sent to a, a TB sanatorium. Yeah, wow. exactly. Right. Like this yeah. is stuff that is like historically we know, but we just didn't employ and we just forgot <laughs> and just lost our minds. Like we just lost our minds. And so for me, this was like my Super Bowl. I was like, of course I can do this. I knew vaccine operations. I had done H1N1 mass vaccination clinics. I had done, you know, mass testing because I had done contact investigations with tuberculosis. We had multiple outbreak contact investigations that we did through the school district because we had um, active TB cases in two of the schools. And then we also had one at one of our hospital systems. So I'd done all of that stuff before. So this was not new to me. I was just like, it's just a different disease, but like, it's not new. So it was just funny that like all of those years that I was at the health department just prepared me for this like exact moment in time. And did you feel that in your gut? You did, right? I can hear it in your voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That first time that I did that very first in-person interview I went back and looked at those some of those interviews later and I was like if our I was like if our public health system is working this will not become an outbreak in this country and that was the challenge because when this happened our our public health infrastructure had been gutted they one of the things that happened with the you know with the previous administration um, so the Obama administration left them a whole plan, this whole disaster preparedness plan. It was pandemic preparedness, all of this stuff. They literally threw the book away and they gutted all of these health departments. And so that's what happened. Like the, the, the system broke down. The very first time we had a confirmed case in this country, the CDC was the only place that could get the test and confirm the test. By that time, it was already the, 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 you know, the horse had already left the barn. And, and it was crazy that we weren't letting independent labs do the testing. And then the test, it was the test itself was not functioning. So they were getting false negatives. And it's like all these things, we weren't doing proper contact investigations. We weren't doing source um, control. It's all like all of the things that could have gone wrong went wrong. Like we did not follow normal procedure. And that's why like with, with MPOX, we saw the same thing happen where, you know, we have, we've had over 65,000 cases here in the United States. It's the first time we've ever seen this infection because of, you know, global air travel. We, we could have contained it and didn't. And part of it was because the federal government didn't think that we needed to vaccinate people. And we were like, wait, you have a vaccine. 
and you don't think we need to use it. They're like, oh, there's just a few cases. And then it just went out of control because again, it was in the middle of summer. It was, you know, we first identified cases in May. Pride month was in June and it just exploded, you know, because it was mostly in LGBTQ persons. And then we were seeing women, we were seeing children, we were seeing household contacts. Like they just, and by the time we started getting the vaccine out, it was only available at health departments and it was only available to certain people. Now it's available to everybody and you can't pay somebody to get MPOX vaccine. But now the problem's over, right? So it's just this like lack of thought process around preventative healthcare and preventative measures. And when you, when you invest in public health, the best thing about public health is when we're doing our job, you don't know we exist. Yeah. Well, you you touched on so many important points and um, there were so many lessons. And, you know, I, I do think right now we're kind of trying to do a look back, assess what did we learn? How can we use it for planning in the future and to hopefully navigate through some of these pieces? But so many key things that have happened and pharmacists have been right in the center of so much of the solution um, for for solving some of these public health challenges. Um, well, on a little bit lighter note and shifting gears a little bit, this it's this time of year where it's college signing time, you know, where um, people are fig- figuring out what school they're going to go to and um, admitted student days are happening across the country. So what insights would you share for potential students that are considering pharmacy as a career? Well, I would say uh, keep, keep your eyes open um, and, and be looking at the whole picture. Um, Try not to listen to a lot of the noise because right now there is a lot within the, you know, within the media space that talks about, you know, poor working conditions and, you know, burnout and all of these things. I I say, if you care about patients and patient care and you, you know, you are passionate about going into the profession, that that should not deter you. There will definitely be jobs. I tell people this all the time. I'm like, public health, we're over here. The water's warm. I don't know anybody who works in public health who does not like their job. <laughs> like, come on over, right? Yeah, like, I like there's that. Tons of, there are tons of, there's tons of jobs over here in public health. Uh, and then, you know, regulatory fairs, research, pharma. Like, there's just, I feel like the, the, the thought process is that there's just hospital or community. And there's so many things that you can do as a pharmacist. Like, even me, like, you know, I'm mid-career. I've been a pharmacist for almost 20 years. And now I'm like, huh, do I want to do patient care? Do I not want to do patient care? Because I have the option because I can literally do any job. I can consult. I can do medical writing. I could be a journalist and be a medical health uh, contributor. You know, I have a colleague of mine, she's an ER physician. She writes a regular um, medical column for MSNBC. Like there's so many ways that you can get paid that doesn't involve you counting pills. So I think the biggest thing I would say is just keep your eyes open. Just know that your first job out of pharmacy school is not going to be your last. If you're not happy, leave and always have an exit strategy. Such, such important points about keep your eyes open and, you know, looking at the bigger picture and navigating through all that. You know, that's one of my goals with the Melissa Rx Grips podcast is to widen the path and to tell people about some of these opportunities that are out there that maybe they hadn't heard of. Um, think about what mentors are available that you can interact with. But again, how can we um, increase so that people see 
role models or just opportunities or else even just widen the path so that if something hasn't been done, um, then people gain the confidence to, you know, to try to go on that. And you've given several examples throughout our, our conversation today talking about that. Well, you know, our, our time together is drawing to a close, but I have to tell you, I think we could keep going. And I look forward to the next time that you and I are in person together. But one of the things that I do um, at the conclusion of each of the Melissa Rx Scripps um, podcast conversations is ask this question. So it's, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rx Scripps? Do what gives you joy. Do what you love. Life is short. Do what you love. So, and that may change and that's okay. Like I would say, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd be like patient care. If you asked me today, I'd say that's communications, branding, strategy, um, helping, you know, professionals in particular, professional women showing up as their best selves and really optimizing their um, digital footprint so that they can show up online and get the job that they want. Um, I think that's that's my passion now. I love doing media. I would love to do more of it. Um, I'd love to do more of it on a national level because again, I think elevating the profile of the profession of pharmacy is, I think it's my it's my calling. And then also the fact that I really just think that the profession needs a PR makeover. You know, we just don't have enough good stories out there about pharmacists and pharmacy that the public can then drive social change in order to make a path, as you said, widen the path for us to really be paid for the services. So when the emergency declaration ends next month, because it's going to end May 11th, there are going to be so many people in this country that have now come to rely on the pharmacy and the pharmacist for their COVID testing, their COVID vaccinations, all of these things, that is about to go away because that expanded scope of practice has not been um, started from the top down. So the federal government, th that's going away. That is part of the emergency declaration. And so I think you're gonna see a bit of a reckoning because there's gonna be a lot of unhappy constituents yelling at their lawmakers saying, hey, you need to fix this. And that's what we need to capitalize on. Thank you, boy. Do what brings you joy, 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 joy. And then, you know, be in the room where it happens, address some of these big things. Because I think as you just described, we really have this opportunity um, right now to continue the momentum that pharmacists have been a key part of, um, and then continue to focus on getting paid. So, I just want to say thank you, um, Dr. Madison, for sharing your insights with me. This is the Melissa Rx Gross Podcast. I want to thank our listeners and encourage you to, to subscribe to the podcast. I also want to say a special thank you to Kate Cruz, our podcast producer with Executive Podcast Solutions, who helps make the magic happen. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for having me today, Melissa. It's been my pleasure and my joy.